we have a, uh, a sermon today from Joshua chapter 6. We're going to continue on kind of looking through the book of Joshua. If you have a Bible or a Bible on your phone. And I wanted to just take a minute. We recognize that there are a lot of people in our church that still, because of COVID, are not really comfortable coming and meeting in a larger gathering or a public gathering. A lot of people watching online, so I'm waving to the online camera. Thanks for being a part of our church. We, are, we recognize there are a lot of people that would love to be here, but for various health reasons are not comfortable doing that. We just want to say that we love you, and we're glad that you're still a part of our family. We look forward to when we can all be gathering together again. So Joshua chapter 6. Um, this is the story of the Israelites conquering the city of Jericho in the Old Testament. And just a really quick backstory: they've come, they've been delivered out of slavery in Egypt, the Israelites. This promise that God had given to Abraham hundreds of years before was that you are going to be a people in the promised land. You're going to have a land of your own. And they took a detour as slaves, slaves in Egypt for a long time, and then they were delivered, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and now they are in the promised land. And the first thing that they have to do is conquer this city of Jericho, because the promised land wasn't all cleared out, move-in ready, brand new construction. It'd be like moving into a house and still having the old inhabitants there squatting, and you got to kick them out. So this is what the Israelites have to do today. There are really two parts to this message. And I recognize we got some kids in here still. Thanks, kids, for coming. We're glad that you're with us. Um, two parts to this message. The first is this. God gives instructions to the Israelites, and they have to trust and obey him. They have to have faith that God is providing the victory even when they can't see it. And the second part is a, is a part of this story that we're going to read it, and you might be like me where you've read this before. You think, that sounds terrible. Like, how could God allow that? How could God do that? In fact, the second part of this message and the story we're going to read today is a reason why there are a lot of people who give up on faith in God because they read this story and they say, this God sounds terrible. I want nothing to do with this God. So that's what we're going to get to today. Because here's what I think. Um, you're here at the 11 o'clock service. You're wide awake. You've been up for a while. It's a beautiful day outside. Here's what I think. In our world, there's a lot of difficult issues that we're talking about, a lot of debates that people are having. We have different viewpoints and a global pandemic and an upcoming election, and everyone has views and everyone has opinions. So we're going to dive into a really tough to understand because passage of Scripture because here's what I see. Y'all are handling the stuff in our world like champs, right? No debates, no weariness, there's no harsh words. This group of people is clearly going to be able to handle a difficult passage of Scripture today, right? Right. <laughs> I've seen what y'all post on Facebook, and I think, man, these people are handling the pandemic like champs. We got nothing to worry about today. So why not jump right in? If you were catching sarcasm there, that's not intended. Maybe it was intended. Joshua chapter 6. We're going to be in verse 1 through 5. This is going to be the first part of the message, is talking about these instructions that God gave to Israel and how they had to trust and have faith and obey. So here's the first part of the story. Joshua 6, verse 1 through 5, it says this. Now the gates of Jericho, this is the city that God was having them invade and conquer. The gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went in, no one came out. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men, and do this for six days. 
have seven priests carry the trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the walls of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So this was God's plan for the defeating the city of Jericho. Now, the city of Jericho being kind of on the outskirts of this land, of the land of the Canaanites, this would have been a heavily fortified city. This would have been almost like a military outpost where most of the people in the city of Jericho would have been soldiers or military men and their families. This was a stronghold. It's not, it's, it's not a coincidence that God had them face this city first. This was a stronghold in the land of the Canaanites. This was not going to be an easy battle, a very heavy, heavily fortified city. And God's instructions are rather unique. March around the city. Have the army march around the city one time and do that for six days. And then on the seventh day, march around the city seven times on that day, and then blow the horns, and then lift up a shout, and then the walls of the city are going to come down, and the army's going to march in, and you're going to have victory. But how God describes it is, right from the beginning, see, I've given you this city. God is saying to the Israelites, you're going to have to do this for seven days, but I've already given you the city. It's already yours. So if I'm there that day, I'm going to trust God to the point where, okay, God, I believe that you're giving us the city, but let's see the walls come down. Let's see the people run away, and then I'll believe that the victory is ours, right? We want to see the results of the victory before we trust that God has given us the victory. But there's an element of faith here because God is saying, I've delivered the city into your hands, and now let's go see it happen. There is a faith there. There's a faith that comes in our world, a trust that comes in our world when we know there's a victory ahead, but we've got to march around the city for seven days. We have to walk it out. That's where our trust comes in. That's where our faith comes in. Because I imagine if I'm there, if, you're, I'm in, if I'm in the military of Israel and we're like, day one, we're going to march around this city, and maybe they were singing songs or maybe they were quiet or maybe they were doing something, you're full of faith day one. You're like, this is going to be great. We're marching around the city, and the people, the Canaanites are on the wall looking up, maybe, like, insulting you, like, great, walk around our walls. Like, that's going to do a lot. But f day one, you're full of faith. You're like, yes, God's given us this city. Day two, you're like, all right, let's do this again. And nothing has changed since day one, but we're marching around this again. Day three is probably when you're starting to think, okay, did God really say that? Is the victory really going to come? Is God going to... Has God really given us this city? Because all we're doing is walking. All we're doing is moving forward, trusting that he's going to deliver this city to us. I imagine on day three is where the doubt starts to creep in. Did we remember that right? Did God really tell us this? And this is like us in our life when we are walking through something. God has said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you victorious. There's going to be a victory for you. I'm going to deliver this. But we've got to walk around this thing for a while. There's a faith and a trust that comes in our life when we're on day three of battling this thing. And we haven't seen the victory yet, but we trust that God is providing the victory. Maybe it's a season that you've been walking through for a long time, way more than seven days. The faith in our hearts comes when we say, I know God has a victory. I have not seen it yet, but I'm going to keep 
walking. I'm going to keep moving forward. I'm going to have a faith in my heart knowing that God is here. And that can be difficult, right? I've been there. That can be hard. If, you've go, if you're going through something difficult in your life right now, you know that's hard. I'm walking. I'm trusting. I'm on lap three around Jericho, and I'm believing. I'm starting to doubt a little bit, but I want to have faith. I want to believe that the battle is won, even though I can't see it yet. I want to believe that the victory is there, even though I can't see it yet. This is the life of faith. This is the life of faith. This is the life of faith when the enemy is all around us, making fun of us, taunting us. Like, you've walked three days around this. When are you going to actually do something? And it's no coincidence that this city of Jericho was a stronghold. We battle these things in our lives, something that you've been walking around for a long time. And it takes faith to keep moving forward. Amen? It takes faith to keep trusting and keep moving forward. It takes faith to keep walking, to keep praying. And you might only be on lap three around this area of your life, and you've got a ways to go, but keep walking. So right off the bat today, I want to take a moment in this story and just remind us, it's time to re-energize our trust in God. Whatever you're walking through, whatever you're facing, it's time to re-energize your faith, believing, yes, I know that God has called me to do this, and I know the victory is up ahead, but I've got to keep walking in faith, and it might be a while, but I know that that's going to come to pass, and I know that I'm going to see the victory that God brings. Amen? Do we believe in the midst of lap three around Jericho, do we believe that God is still good? Yes, we do. Do we believe that he is trustworthy and all-powerful? Yes, we do. But it's that faith that comes, and it's that it can be so hard to have that faith in the midst of walking around the city. It's so hard to not grow weary in our faith. Difficult seasons, it's so hard to not become weary, right? When we're exercising our faith, it's, no, it's so hard to not have it get worn out, our trust and our confidence. But here's the deal, and here's the truth of Scripture, and here's how this works This is how it works with our physical bodies. We have to exercise it for it to get stronger. We have to put it to the test, and it emerges stronger. That's how muscles work. That's why if I want to run a marathon, I can't go out right now and run a marathon, even though I'm trying real hard because I haven't trained my body to do that. I need to exercise it for it to emerge stronger. It's the same with our faith. And the only way your faith is going to grow and the only way my faith is going to grow stronger is when we walk through a difficult time, when we have to exercise it, when we have to have that faith even though we can't see the walls falling down yet. That's the only way, unfortunately, that our faith grows stronger. We'd love to take a pill or read a book or do something, but our faith emerges stronger when we put it to the test and it emerges stronger on the other side. James chapter 1 in the New Testament, verse 2 through 4 says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. That verse has always bugged me. True joy, pure joy when I face trials? I'll maybe get through it. I don't want to be joyful, but Paul or James is writing, Consider it pure joy when you face trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. In other words, Going through a trial is how your faith is going to grow, and that's what we want. So that's why we can have joy, because we know the testing of our faith produces perseverance. Walking around Jericho on day three produces perseverance because we are believing when we can't see it. This is what faith is. 
Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So part one of this message is, in a difficult season, let's re-energize our faith. Amen? Let's re-energize our trust in God. Even though we're walking around something difficult, it's important to remember that God is with us. He has a victory ahead of us, and we have faith, and we have joy in the midst of it, knowing that he is growing our faith. So to apply this to today, it's not super difficult to think of some difficult things that we're going through as a group of people, as a community, as a nation around the world. It's not very often we have a global pandemic, right, thankfully. But COVID-19 is stressful. It's stressful. You can see it. I see it in my life. Just everyday life is stressful. It's just a, an added stress. It's faith testing. Certainly, it is putting to test the old fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Amen? The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, and goodness, and self-control, and how many of those things are really thriving these days, right? <laughs> it's like COVID-19 said, we're going to just, just the fruit of the Spirit, we're going to see how that's working. And I, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news. It's going to sound like I am a couple of times today. I think we got a ways to go with the whole COVID-19. I don't think we're on lap six of around Jericho. We might be on lap three of Jericho with this thing. It might be around us for a while. But let's remember, as we walk through this very practical thing in our world, that there is a joy that can come because as we face this trial, we know our faith is getting stronger. We know our faith is getting stronger. And it's the only way our faith is going to get a workout is when we walk through something like this. It's the only way we're going to grow. And how do we grow in the midst of a season like this that is trying? We grow when we remember in the midst of a pandemic or in the midst of an election season or anything else that's causing all the fruit of the Spirit to seem to go away from everybody. We grow when we continue to honor Christ first and foremost. When we, when we, grow, we grow when we want the fruit of the Spirit to be first and foremost. No matter what we're facing, I'm going to have love. I'm going to have joy. I'm going to have peace. I'm going to have patience. I'm going to have kindness. I'm going to have gentleness and self-control. This is how we grow. This is how that faith and that Christ-likeness gets a workout. I'm going to continue to prefer others and show kindness, to show the love of Jesus in every interaction. When somebody's telling me to wear a mask and when somebody's mad at somebody else for not wearing a mask, just the mask thing alone, goodness, we can show kindness and gentleness and self-control and perspective of the people of Jesus Christ who have a higher calling, a higher allegiance, a higher reason for joy and patience and faith and trust. Because there is, I see it, I see it in our church and I mostly see it just around our world. There is a weariness that is going on right now. Christy talked about it today as we were worshiping the spirit of heaviness. It just is, it is difficult. There's a weariness and a heaviness that is on everybody, just as a result of our world, right? We can feel it. We're not sure what's happening with school, what's happening with businesses. Here's the deal. I think there's probably going to be a mask mandate handed down. I think there's probably going to be another shutdown, and we're as a church going to have to decide do we cancel services? Do we make everybody wear a mask? Do we keep going? And here's the fun part about being the pastor of this church. 
I'm going to let you in, right? I can make a decision, and half the people in the church, including half the people in this room, are going to think that I'm bowing down and, and the, or no, that I'm, fear, that I'm a fear monger and that I'm living in fear and that I'm a communist, okay? That's one of the half, okay? The other half is going to think he clearly does not care about the safety of people and doesn't care about the well-being of people. So that's, and that's anybody in leadership. If you're mad at somebody for owning a business and, ha- I mean, that's the decision that anybody has. You got one half of the group that's going to think that you don't care about safety and the other half that thinks you should move back to Russia, you know, Canada. or Canada, <laughs> where they're building a wall. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Let's not go there. This is all, all going to happen. So as the people of God, and I recognize this is going to be decisions that we're going to have to make, but as the people of God, the followers of Jesus, let's just take a minute and reaffirm our faith and our trust and the fruit of the Spirit. No matter what you agree with or don't agree with, let's reaffirm our trust in a good God, and let's remember why we are here as the people of God. Why are we here as the people of God? To be like Jesus and to tell people about Jesus and to model the light and the love of Jesus. That's why we're here. It is easy to get sidetracked in an election year, it's easy to get sidetracked in a global pandemic with all sorts of side arguments about what we believe in this and this. And I'm not trying to step on any toes. It's easy to get sidetracked in the side debates. Don't go on social media because it is constant side debates about views on this and I found an expert that agrees with me. It is all side discussions. It's fine. The people of God need to be above that because we have a higher allegiance where we don't lose sight of our highest calling, showing people the love of Jesus, telling people about Jesus. We don't want to forfeit that at the expense of a side discussion that we're willing to die on the battlefield of this debate or this debate. We are a higher calling to show the fruit of the Spirit to the world around us. Amen? God, I'm glad I heard a couple amens there. I thought I might get deported or something like that. I'm Canadian. In case you're wondering what's with all the Canadian jokes and you're new here, I'm a, I'm a Canadian citizen. Our world needs the love of Jesus. Our world is fatigued and weary and hurting. In addition to that, more and more, our world is just wandering, searching for truth or trying to resist truth, searching for hope, wondering what the future holds. We know where hope is. We know what the future holds. We know there is a future secure with Jesus Christ. We know there is truth and there is grace and there is love and there is forgiveness. We are the ones. It's our commission to go and tell people about this. And we are the Christ followers, the ones with this message. And too often we get sidetracked with a society debate that is not going to affect eternity at all. Let's reaffirm why we are here. I, as the pastor of Homestead Church, if you're going to wonder what, what makes me make decisions coming up, whether or not we mask or shut down or all these things, and some of you are already typing your complaint email right now, and I will remind you, those emails go to jeff.merricks at gmail.com. We can spell that one out for you. If you're wondering why I'm going to make decisions, here's the deal. I know why we are here in this community. It's to reach this community. And so I'm not willing to burn any bridges with the people in this community 
over a mask or a mandate. I recognize all of us. How we model Christ-likeness now is going to be how they receive the message of Christ later when we try to tell them. So that's what, that's what guides my decision-making. So jeff.merricks at charter at gmail.com. That's the complaint email if you disagree with that. We are the people of God. And I want this message, the first part of this message anyways, to be about that. Let's find our joy. Let's reclaim our joy. It is tough out there. There's lots of reasons for debate and discouragement out there. But let's reclaim our joy, our faith. Let's reaffirm our faith in a God that says there is a victory coming. You just got to walk around this a few more times. You just have to trust and believe that there is good coming. You just got to get around the city of Jericho a few more times, and you will see the manifestation of the victory, and that is when our faith grows. We are in a season now where our faith can grow. Let's grow our faith. Amen? So that's the first part. Now, that was the easy part. That's not even the part that I thought people were going to get offended by, if you can believe that. Because then what happens? They walk around the city six days, and then the seventh day they walk around it a seventh or seven times. And then this is what happens in verse 15 through 21. This is the part you're going to hear some things and you're like, I do not like that God did that. Here we go, verse 15. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around... When the priests sound the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout for the Lord has given you this city. And the city and all that in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpets sounded, the army shouted at the sound of the trumpet. When the men gave the loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in. And they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys, all were put to death by the sword. And that is the part I'm like, what? How would a good God allow that to happen? We, we're fine with armies and military people, but every living person, young and old, men and women, children... That's the part where a lot of people read that and they're like, I want nothing to do with this God. This God who just decides this city of people, we're going to wipe them out so that my people can move in. That sounds a lot like our world today where we think of a country taking over another country or a genocide. That's what this sounds like. And a lot of people read that and be like, I want nothing to do with that God. That God is not good. I don't like that God. So we're going, to talk, we're going to talk through that a little bit. How can we trust that this God is the God that is worthy of our worship? So the first thing I want to point out, it's a little side story here. It said, only Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in her house shall be spared. And so they were the only people that were spared as Israel went in and conquered the city. If you read back earlier in Joshua, Rahab was the one when the spies went in, the Israel spies went in to scout out the land to figure out if they could conquer it and to see what they were facing. 
Rahab was the Canaanite, the, the lady living in Jericho, who showed kindness, who hid the Israelite spies. When the other Canaanites were looking for these enemy Israel spies, Rahab hid them, allowed them to escape with the agreement that when you come and when you conquer this city, show kindness to me and my house. And so they went in and they showed kindness to Rahab because she, she had shown kindness to God's people. She was shown mercy. And that's important to note. Everyone in Rahab's house was spared, and we're going to get to that a little bit later. But the rest of the people in Jericho, Israelites marched in, and they devoted the city to the Lord. They took all the valuable things, the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron, and they dedicated it to the tabernacle treasury, basically the house of God. God said, all of this I want in the tabernacle, and everybody else was killed. It's all, I read one commentary, it was talking about this didn't happen in every city that they conquered, but this was like a first fruits, this, this idea of a first fruits offering where God set it up where it's where we get the principle of a tithe, the first 10% of what you earn, you give back to God. In the Old Testament, it was the first fruits of the harvest, you give to God. The first of the cattle and livestock, you sacrifice to God as a way of showing trust in Him, as a way of showing, I'm going to sacrifice this first to you, knowing that you're going to provide the rest. This is a, this is a faith builder. It's a trust exercise. This is kind of what God was doing with this first city. Everything was dedicated to God. All the silver and gold went into the treasury of the tabernacle, and everything else was destroyed. And this is hard to grasp. If you talk to people, they might say to you, I want nothing to do with Christianity because of stuff like that. This is the God that condoned slavery and genocide and wiped out men, women, and children just so his people could have a victory. Why would I want anything to do with that God? Have you ever heard that before? I've heard that before. It's hard to grasp. I read it, and I have those same questions. How could this God be considered good and loving? So we're going to look at this a little bit. The first thing I want to point out, which doesn't really answer that question yet, we're going to get to the good news at the end, right? This is going to be, we're going to ramp up there, okay? The first one is this. This, how God worked with Israel in the, in the land of the Canaanites, in the promised land, is so symbolic of what God wants to do in our lives, where God delivers us out of sin and slavery, out of Egypt, quote-unquote, and gives us new life in Christ so we become followers of Jesus. This is the journey that we're on if you are a follower of Jesus. And then what he does is he says, okay, we're not done, but instead now we're going to go through every area of your life, every area of your heart, and we're going to root out all the previous inhabitants. We're going to root out all the old patterns of sin and idolatry and wickedness. And so what we do as followers of Jesus is we say, Lord, I receive your mercy and salvation, and now I give my life to you, every area. And the more we are complacent in that, the more we allow old patterns of sin and wickedness and idolatry to remain, the more our faith is just complacent. And that's what God is doing with the Israelites. He's saying to them, go wipe out these people, drive them out of the city, because I don't want their wickedness and their idolatry to infect your devotion. God is saying, I want the Israelites to be devoted to me. And the Canaanites were evil, unrighteous, idolatrous, wicked people. And God knew if they're allowed to remain in with the Israelites, it's just going to infect their devotion. And this is what God does with us. Kids, if you're in here, kid, if you're a kid in here, look at me for a second. This is why your mom or dad or both 
put a high priority on who you hang out with because we know if you hang out with those that are good influences, that's going to be to your benefit. And if you hang out with those who are bad influences, that are going to be a bad, they're going to have a bad effect on you, okay? This is why maybe, maybe some of the girls in here, you hear your dad saying, you're not going to date that boy, and we dads maybe go a little overboard at times protecting our kids. This is at the heart of that. This is at the heart of God the Father, why he wanted the enemy nations driven out so that the devotion of the Israelites could be pure and fully devoted to him. And you're going to see that in the following stories in Joshua, and especially if you read through the next book of Judges, the Israelites start out super strong with Jericho. They drive everybody out. Every city or people group they find, they drive them out, and they tear down all the idols and all the altars. But eventually, they start getting tired of that. There's a story in Judges that says they tried to drive out these people, but they were really difficult people to drive out. So eventually, Israel just gave up and let the old people remain. And what happens is you see that more and more. And then what happens is you start to see the Israelites start to intermarry with the people. You start to see them adapt to their cultures. You start to see the Israelites adapt to the Canaanite practice of idolatry and wickedness. And all of a sudden, you just see it get infected throughout the whole nation of Israel. They are no longer devoted fully to God, but they have been compromised and there is wickedness throughout them. And you'll see it as Israel as they, as they go up and down in their devotion to God, God's judgment comes against them. And it eventually leads to Israel's destruction and judgment, this inability to stay fully devoted. And this is symbolic of the work God does in our heart. He wants us to surrender every part of our lives. If you want to follow Jesus, you take your entire heart, your whole life, and you say, God, I give this to you. And he comes in and he starts to root out old patterns of sin. And this is every part of our lives, our finances, our careers, our relationships, our sexuality, our habits, our future, every part of it, we say, God, I give it to you. And as soon as we start to say, oh, except this part here, I'm going to keep that. I'm going to hang on to that. I like that. No, God, I don't really want you to take this area of my life. As soon as we allow that complacency in, that little bit of compromise just infects the rest of us. I've seen it in my life. We've all seen it. And when we allow areas where we don't allow the light of Jesus Christ in to bring healing and repentance and forgiveness, it just festers and it grows and it infects the rest of us. We grow in faith when we allow God full access into our lives, every area. God, there's no part of my life that is off limits to you. This is what it means to be a Christ follower. God, there's no area of my life that is off limits to you. I want you to come in and drive out the old inhabitants and make it new, make it holy, make it pure, make it righteous. We want to strive for that. So that's the first part of that. But that really doesn't answer the skeptic's question, right? If you're here and you still have the question that I have, why would, good, why would a good God allow that to happen? I want to spend the rest of the time talking about some of the different attributes of who God is. Who God is. Yes, we believe that God is love. Yes, we believe that God created the heavens and the earth and he can perform miracles. We like all those parts. Those are the good parts of God that we like. That's friendly God. Yay, God. He's my best friend. But there's three other attributes of God that I want to highlight that are a little bit more difficult for us to grasp in our modern society, okay? First is this, and they're going to be up on the screen. God is holy. He is holy, which means he is perfect, without sin, and 
the very nature of holiness means he can't tolerate sin. He can't be around sin. Sin in the sight of a holy God deserves death. That's how holiness works. God can't tolerate my sin just because he's rooting for me, right? He is a holy God that cannot tolerate my sin or your sin. Our sin in the sight of holiness deserves death, okay? But there's good news coming up, okay? So we're going to start there. We're going to consider that the low point of the message. You and I are, we are sinful, and sin in the sight of a holy God deserves death, okay? We're going to start there. All right, it gets better from here. (laughs) Second, the first was that God is holy. The second, that God is just. He is the God of justice. Now, we love the idea of just God when it's other evildoers, right? We love the idea that people are going to, the people who are causing ill and harm around the world, people buying and selling young people into sex trafficking, those people we think, I'm glad that our God is just because he is going to judge the wicked. Our God is just. Sin and wickedness he cannot tolerate and it will be judged, except it's the same for us. Our sin and our wickedness, because God is just, sin and wickedness will be judged. Now, this is what happened to the Canaanites. This is is the reason why God had the Israelites wipe out the Canaanites, because he talked about it for years and years and years. The wickedness in the Canaanites is so bad, it is rampant. God told Abraham hundreds of years before this, he said, this land right here is going to be your land. It's going to be the promised land for you, the nation of Israel and your descendants. And it said this in the book of Genesis, the current inhabitants will be judged for their wickedness and idolatry. Talking about the Canaanites, there was demonic, rampant idolatry. There was repugnant sexual activity. There was child sacrifice to their God. This is what was going on in the land of the Canaanites. In Leviticus 18, verse 25, it says this, again, prophesying what was going to happen to the city of Jericho and to the land of the Canaanites. For the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. So Joshua and the army is God's judgment brought upon the Canaanites for their wickedness. God is a just God. He is holy and he is just. And the third one I want to point out is this. God is sovereign. God is sovereign, which means he is above everything, which means he gets to do what he wants to do. In other words, like if you imagine a king, we don't have a king in this country, but if you had a king who had ultimate authority, the king gets to do what he wants. The king is sovereign. That's what sovereignty means. So you might hear about holiness and justice and still think, but he still wiped out all the men, women, and children in Jericho. I still don't understand why God would do that. It's unfair that God would do things this way. Because of his sovereignty, we recognize God is above it. He can do what God wants. God gets to do what he wants. We have a hard time with this part because we want to do what we want. We don't like absolute authority. This country was built on throwing off the oppression of an absolute authority. And so it is built into the DNA of all the people in this country of we don't like absolute authority. Don't tell me what to do. Kids, you were born with that. You maybe have felt that with your mom and dad. 
Don't tell me what to do because I'm the boss of me. I want to be sovereign. So we resist this idea of God being sovereign. But he's God. He is sovereign. He can do what he wants. He cannot tolerate sin. He will not share his glory. Now, this may cause some of you in here to like him or choose to not like him or even declare that he doesn't exist. But our decision to like him or believe in him has zero effect on his existence and his sovereignty and his holiness and his supremacy. But the question still remains, but how can we say that he is good and worthy of worship? Other than saying, well, because he's sovereign and we don't want to be judged, we're kind of scared of him, so we better do what he wants, right? And that's no relationship with God. So how can we say that he is worthy of worship and living for when we read stuff like this? And here's where we're going to wrap up today. Because in addition to our God being holy and just and sovereign, our God is also love and mercy and forgiveness, where sin is always met with judgment because he is holy. Repentance and faith is always met with forgiveness because he is love and full of mercy, right? Is that good? Is that, we're getting better, right? We're not on the, on the depressing ground floor anymore. We're moving up now, right? Come on, this is good news. Repentance and faith is always met with forgiveness because our God is the God of love and mercy. He is a good God who wants none to perish. It's in his nature. He is holy and he is just and he is sovereign, but he does not want anyone to perish. People who turn to him are shown mercy. That is why it was important that that part of the story in there, Rahab, who showed kindness to the Israelites, she was shown mercy. There's other stories in the Old Testament of nations who were facing the judgment of God and turned in repentance, and God showed kindness and mercy. The story of Jonah and the whale, Jonah going to Ninevite, Nineveh to the Ninevites. This is the story of the Ninevites. They turned to God, and they were shown mercy. And this is the best news. This is the good news today, right? This is why we're going to celebrate communion together in just a few minutes. Because our God shows mercy and love where our sin deserves judgment and punishment. He shows us mercy and love. And the best news, the best news of the day is this. When you read the Old Testament, really the, the, the word testament comes from a word that means covenant. It's considered the old covenant. So really, when you read the Old Testament, I want you to think of this was the old agreement between God and Israelites. And the agreement was, if you live righteously, if you do enough good things, if you pursue me with your whole heart, then I will show you mercy. And then you will receive the victory of the Lord. That was the old covenant. It was based on Israel's ability to do good stuff. That's what it was. We are not in the Old Covenant anymore. The New Testament is the New Covenant. And what is the New Covenant all about? We are going to celebrate it when we take communion in just a few minutes. The New Covenant is not based on our righteousness, is not based on our ability to follow the rules and do all the right things. It's not based on anything we can do. What's it based on? What's the New Covenant based on? Jesus. Jesus. He died. He rose. 
And when we are in Christ, when we say, Jesus, I need your forgiveness, we are in the new covenant. So we don't need to perform well in order to receive God's mercy. Jesus has provided it. We don't need to follow all the rules to satisfy God's justice, to satisfy God's holiness. Jesus Christ has satisfied God's justice and holiness because he was perfect and he died for you. So when you receive the forgiveness of Jesus, you're in the new covenant. And this is the best news of the day. That's the best news of the day. John 3.16. Kids, maybe you know this verse. Grown-ups, we memorized this as a kid. We, we memorized John 3.16. We didn't know there was a John 3.17, but I'm going to read verse 16 and 17. This is who our God is. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. This is not an angry God looking to wipe out people who are just disobeying him. God did not send Jesus in the world to condemn the world, but to satisfy the requirements of a holy and just God so that we can just take on the righteousness of Christ. This is the gospel message. This is the gospel message. Sin is still met with judgment. And one day we are going to stand before God. And the tendency is to think, oh, man, we're going to be in front of holy, just, righteous God. We don't stand a chance. But for those who are in Christ, when God the Father looks at you, all he's going to see is the righteousness of Christ. That is amazing. That is amazing. What a gift to satisfy the righteousness of a holy God. Just because Jesus died and rose again, when God looks at you now and forever, all he's going to see is the righteousness of Christ. He's going to see righteous. Hasn't done anything wrong. What a gift. If you have not received that gift of the salvation of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you, just open up your heart to Jesus. Just say, Jesus, I need a Savior. You are, God the Father is righteous and holy and sovereign, and my sin doesn't stand a chance. But with Jesus, I have the righteousness of Christ. So all you got to do is receive the mercy and salvation of Jesus and then allow God to do that work in your heart. This is salvation. This is the Christian life. That's all you need to do. It's as simple as just confessing to God, God, I need a Savior. I believe that Jesus died and rose for me. That's all we got to do. And then you'll stand before God one day and he'll say, righteous, covered by the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So instead of reading this story in the Old Testament, thinking, how could God allow that? You know, how, how, God, how come you could be so holy and just and causing judgment? Instead of that, we today, we can say, thank you for showing mercy when our sin did not deserve it. None of us deserve mercy. Thank you for making a way by sending your son to die. He is a good God, holy and righteous and just and loving, and merciful, and not wanting anyone to perish. Not wanting anyone to perish. Let's remember that. As we look at the story of the Israelites, as we are walking through a difficult season, let's allow that to frame every discussion we have. We are saved by Jesus Christ. We have victory assured to us in the future. And in the meantime, we just 
exude the light of Christ to everyone around us. And we don't get caught up in all the side discussions. We stay focused on what we are about, telling people about Jesus, worshiping him for being a loving, merciful God. Amen?